when we come to the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, and we read that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, and kindness. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I wonder if that last one actually makes sense. That the Holy Spirit of God inspires his people to be kind. Like, doesn't God know what's going on in the world? Hasn't he turned on the news? Doesn't he know how crooked the political right can be and how evil the political left can be? Kindness is what we need. No, we need change, God. We need more education, better information. We need fools taken out of power. Kindness? Really? But then we get to the verse that we actually just sang over and over again for a minute there. In Romans 2.4, after describing all the ways that the world is sinful and broken, Paul turns and points the finger at the reader and says, but who are you to judge? And he goes on in Romans 2.4, he says, do you show content for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, repentance is a change word. It's a word about the heart turned back to the path of God, as we just heard, or the mind renewed, the mind changed. Repentance is a changing word, and it seems that the Almighty God's strategy for bringing about change in the world has been the outpouring of his kindness. That definitively, in the grace he has afforded us through Jesus, he has changed the world whether we believe it or not. So kindness might actually be something that we need. So what is it? What is the fruit of kindness? Well, I believe that kindness is doing good for others, especially when they can't return it or don't deserve it. And we're going to explore this by exploring the ways in which God is kind and moving from his kindness to ours. So before we continue, why don't you open up your Bible and let's just get reacquainted with the verses we've been studying for the past few weeks. We're in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, on how we're shaped by God's Spirit along the lines of God's character. And in Galatians 5, and following, we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. The image that always comes to mind for me when I hear these words is as if the Spirit is like our running coach, setting the pace as we train for a marathon. I'll admit it is my least favorite image for the Spirit because I hate cardio with a burning passion. And I'm always a little bit conflicted because if you read elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, that the fool runs when no one's chasing them. Just a little food for thought for you runners out there. <laughs> yeah, come on. I got an amen from Perry on that one. But what's going on here, the idea behind it, is that whatever characteristic we're called into growing, the spirit is always a step ahead of us. God's self is these nine characteristics as well. So that means that God is kind. That's not the prevailing wisdom today. 
fact, most of kind of the new wave atheists you'd listen to would tell you God is everything but kind. God is an angry, genocidal maniac who judges the world with undue harshness. God, God doesn't seem to be kind to most of the people we listen to in the world. And most of the ammo they get for this is from the, book of the, the books of the prophets of Israel. Right? I mean, you've got Amos 5, where Amos says, The day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, will be like somebody escaped the mouth of a lion to end up in the claws of a bear. It's not exactly a warm and fuzzy image for God, or it's warm and fuzzy in all the wrong ways. <laughs> but I think some of the confusion behind this, behind the way we perceive God's judgment, is actually a confusion between niceness and kindness. See, nice and kind aren't necessarily the same thing. If, when I think of niceness, the image that comes to mind for me is like Ned Flanders, right? I'm not the biggest fan of The Simpsons in the world, but if you've ever watched it, Ned Flanders is like the writer's take on a Christian. He's always got like a freshly pressed green sweater that's at least a decade out of style, a perfectly manicured mustache, and a hey diddly do for everybody that he meets. But he almost never does anything for the good of anybody else in Springfield. In fact, he always seems to be in a little bit of competition with them, judging them just under his breath. You see, niceness has to do with perceptions, has to do with how people see us, whether they see us as agreeable or satisfactory. It's not the same thing as kindness, at least not for, for the scriptures. See, kindness is a doing word. I think it was Eugene Peterson who said, it's the active ingredient in love. Kindness is doing good for others. And sometimes people can't perceive what their own good is. So sometimes being kind isn't being nice. So enter God's judgment, particularly in the prophets. The best book I've ever read on the prophets is uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, actually a Jewish rabbi's book called, shockingly, The Prophets. And in this book, he studies extensively the entirety of the Hebrew prophets and compares them to other prophetic literature from other religious traditions. And one of the things that he notes that's shocking about the God presented by Israel's prophets is that he's personal, he's movable, he feels compassion for the things that are happening in the world. Heschel writes, God is always felt as he who feels thought of as he who thinks, never as object, always as a being who wills and acts. God's not just some force out there, like karma, doling out bad for bad and good for good. He's, he's a person moved with compassion and who often long suffers. He endures the evil of people. See, what the prophets reveal to us is that God is kind by being attentive to the needs of the world and getting involved. Right, you, it may be hard for us to see, and there are things that are just far away from us culturally and contextually in Scripture that, that make it hard for us to see it this way, but for the writers of Scripture, God's judgment is a holy, good, and beautiful thing. Right? God's judgment is about justice, and justice is about restoration and not retribution. This is God setting the world straight again. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, how he weaves together graciousness, compassion, and justice Isaiah writes in Isaiah 30, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up and show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. See, justice and compassion and grace and mercy, they're not mutually exclusive for the Bible. They're actually woven together. And this is a beautiful thing, I think, when you really sit and think about it. You know, Abraham Heschel 
wrote that what were revealed in the prophets is that history is not a meaningless conglomeration of neutral facts, but a drama unfolding in the relationship between God and humanity. The prophets witness the misery that humanity endures, as well as humanity's wickedness that God endures, and even tolerates. But God is wrestling with humanity. History is where God is defied, where his judgment is enacted, and where his kingship is established. So scriptures reveal to us this history that's not just neutral facts flowing together or forces like karma working. It's this relationship between God and humanity where God is enacting justice out of his kindness to bring about good. God is kind by being attentive to the needs of the world and getting involved. Now, that's one objection that might come up when we talk about God being kind. Another objection that might come up is the fact that for some people, they look at God's kindness and they say, well, it's not really kindness because God seems to expect something from me, doesn't he? Like God gives me grace, but he expects me to be good and to be righteous and, and to be obedient. And that's not kindness because kindness is only kindness if you don't expect anything in return. That's coercion. But the funny thing is, is when I've met people who have this opinion, they're totally comfortable with it. They're totally comfortable with seeing God this way. I remember one young man I was journeying with. He was a business student, and he was struggling with some things, and he had this moment where he just burst out in tears, and he's like, why won't God just let me earn this? Like, why can't it be quid pro quo? Why can't he need something from me just as much as I need something from him? Because that's the way every other relationship in the world works, at least in the kind of capitalist, liberal society that we live in, right? Everything's a commodity. Everything's done to see what we can get in return from it. Every friendship is for benefits, deep down. So who, who gives without expecting anything in return? That's just not the way the world works. The, the author who writes the most about God's kindness is the Apostle Paul. And I just want to go quickly through three key verses where he talks about the kindness of God. The first we've already talked about a little bit, and that's Romans 2.4. So Romans 2, 1 and following, Paul writes, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then in Titus 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. For no discernible benefit to him, God gave Jesus in in our place so that we could have an everlasting relationship with him. And twice, twice you catch this metaphor that Paul uses for it. 
out of the riches, the incomparable riches of God's love. Yes, when we look at the world, nobody can give and give and give expecting nothing in return. We've seen people try. They burn out, right? Or they give and give and give expecting nothing in return. And then finally they get so sick of it, they take something they shouldn't take. In our world, it's hard for us to see somebody giving and giving and giving and expecting nothing in return. But this is, in fact, the way that God is. He is eternally giving of himself, unceasingly. And he happens to be the self-generating, all-powerful creator of all things with infinite storehouses of love and compassion to lavish upon us. And he needs nothing back. Like, what could we give him? What have you to offer? The all-powerful creator of the universe. No, this is only a sign of the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness. God is kind to those who can't return it. But these verses bear hint to another reality, don't they? It's not just that we have nothing to give the all-powerful creator of the universe. It's that we actually are actively engaged in rebellion most of the time, that God is kind to those who don't deserve it. This is where we actually interact with Jesus' teaching on the kindness of God. He's got one place in particular, he really hits it, but he hits it at the same time as he hits our response. And I won't lie to you, this is the most difficult, disturbing, and demanding teaching in all of Christianity. But it also happens to be one of the most beautiful, surprising, and unique gifts God has given the world. If you want to read along, it's in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and following. We'll be there for a little bit. This is what Jesus has to say about our kindness and God's kindness. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Ouch. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because, for this reason, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And Jesus must have said this a few times because Matthew records a different time that Jesus said it. And in that moment when Jesus said it, he said, he makes his sun rise on the good and the evil. He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we're so materialistic, we, we don't quite catch that. That doesn't make sense to us. We know why rain happens. We know why the sun rises, we say. But for Scripture, God didn't just, like, 
build the world like it was a grandfather clock and then go out and grab a cup of tea or like let it rip like a Beyblade and then leave it spinning, right? God is actively engaged in sustaining creation. As one of my favorite contemplatives likes to write, if God stopped lugging you into your chair in the next three seconds, you would cease to exist. God is the one who is making the sun rise. He is the one who is making it rain, and he's doing it on the good and the evil, on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is kind to those who don't deserve it. And Jesus often talks about our engagement in God's mission as if it's just coming into alignment with reality, as if it's just like, this is the way the world works. It's as if he's turning to us and saying, do you think you can stop the sun from shining? Do you think you can hold back the rain in the clouds? No. Nor can you dam up the flow of God's kindness upon humanity living in a way that does not show kindness to others, even when they don't deserve it, is attempting to stop like the rain from falling or the sun from shining. It's just inconsistent. See, we're called to be kind, even to those who don't deserve it. Sometimes to our haters, often to the people that we think are wrong and misguided, potentially even evil. Like our Heavenly Father, we are called to rain kindness upon those who don't deserve it. And let's be perfectly clear here. Jesus is asking for a miracle. Not in the old sense of God doing something out of the ordinary, but in the sense of God miraculously, powerfully displaying his authority over creation. Right? Loving your enemies, this is the only truly spiritual this is a hugely, truly spiritual act, as in flows in and from and through God's own spirit. Like, I think we've all heard stories, and they can make the hit. It's like an electric charge has gone through the atmosphere, right? Like the, the mother whose son gets killed in an accident by a drunk driver, and she goes to prison and visits him because he doesn't have a mom. Or Corey Ten Boom, who suffered in concentration camps, preaching a sermon and sees one of her Nazi captors at the back of the church. And she goes and she shakes his hand. These moments, these are not of this world. These are the reality of heaven breaking in. These are people empowered by the Spirit to go above and beyond anything humanly possible. And we've got to be clear, too. That, that means we've got to ask ourselves in these moments if, if we're called to loving even our enemies, right? I don't think we're called to suffer every abuse. There are limits, and we need to be clear about this, right? We're not called to always suffer. Right? God's not sadistic. So if we're in this situation, we've got to really be asking the spirit of this is which we're called to. And sometimes we are called to withdraw. We are called to protect ourselves. And sometimes there are people who need strong words, as we talked about. God's judgment is his kindness. Strong words can be given in kindness. The question to ask in any of these situations where it gets messy and we feel like we need to do something that doesn't look nice is we need to ask, am I doing this for the good of the other person? Is this about restoration or is it about retribution? Because God calls us to be kind to those who don't deserve it. One of the other things Jesus says in this passage is to give to anyone 
give without expecting anything in return. And the word for kindness in Greek also carries the connotation of generosity. He's telling us that we are called to be kind without expecting others to return our kindness. And again, our kind of tendency to commodify everything and to think economically can really creep in here. You know, a lot of us haven't received a lot of love or affection or encouragement or opportunity. People have been stingy towards us. And it's taught us that that love and encouragement and opportunity and praise, that these are limited commodities. So one of my favorite preachers, Leanne McAllister, says, we treat the world as if it's a pie. And if I give you a slice, it means I get less. But there's this little phrase in the work of Thomas Merton, a Catholic contemplative. He titled one of his chapters on love. Love can be kept only by giving it away. And it's rattled in my head for a long time. And I've changed the phrase a little bit, and I say it over and over again. Love only grows when you give it away. See, Jesus rarely uses economic metaphors for the kingdom. What, What metaphors does he use? He uses metaphors from nature. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. Leave a seed too long and it dries out. It dies. But plant it. Plant it and it bears fruit that bears more seeds. It grows exponentially. Love only grows when you give it away. Hold on to it, onto the encouragement, onto the praise, onto the kindness, and it shrivels and dies. Give it, and it grows. But much like nature, the yields are uncertain, as I've said before. Sometimes you plant the seed, and that ground is not good, right? Jesus, Jesus had a parable about that, right? So, sometimes it, it bears much fruit. But the, the thing is, is we're called to love in and through and out of the love of God. Again, following the Spirit of God into how we love, asking the Spirit to give us love to share with others. And ultimately, even though we don't expect our return or our rewards like investments from each other, we do, we are told to expect a reward. Like Jesus said, our Father in heaven will reward us for this. He is keeping track of what we give and of what we suffer. And if not in this life, in the life to come, he shall pay it back above and beyond. We're called to be kind without expecting others to return our kindness. One of the other things we get stingy with because of our commodity thinking is our attention. There's a phrase in English that I hate. It is pay attention. Right? We, we talk about our attention as if it's a very limited commodity. And it is. That's fair. And we do have to be wise about it. But as soon as we get into this level of thinking, we start becoming stingy most of the time. We, we just can't help it. And nothing kills kindness like hurry. Examine the life of Jesus. When a, a pastor, Mark Buchanan, Canadian pastor, uh, gave us a little bit of a talk at a camp I was working at once. He was the first one to point it out to me. He's like, if you examine the life of Jesus, almost all of his most exciting moments of ministry happen while he's on the way somewhere. It's an interruption, right? Like he's going between two places and a woman literally grabs him by the cloak to try and get healing. Or a man cries out, son of David, have mercy upon me, a man that's blind. And what does Jesus do in those situations? He stops, he turns, and he sees them. He gives them attention and gets involved. Jesus told a story about this, the Good Samaritan. Right? There's a man who's beaten half to death left on the side of the road, and a busy priest and a busy worship leader walk by him. But a Samaritan, a people group that the Jews hated, stops and helps him. There's a, Isabel, one of our interns, told me about this. There was a study done in Princeton 
where they got seminarians, people training to be pastors, to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And then what they did is they met them in this building, and there was a studio a few buildings away. And when they met them, they put different levels of kind of hurry upon them. They either said, hey, you're 10 minutes late already. You need to get to the studio. Or, you know, you've got a few minutes to get there, but you really should get going. Or, hey, you got all the time in the world. Just mosey on over when you're ready. And they planted a bit of a trap. They got somebody to dress up as if they were, like, very, very poor and destitute and struggling with something to literally throw themselves in the way of these preachers going between these two buildings. And only out of 40 people that were engaged in the study, only 40% helped that person. Only 40% of the pastors thinking about the Good Samaritan helped that person. And of the 40% that helped, only 10% of that, like, like one or two people who were given the most hurry actually stopped and helped. Like they demonstrated conclusively that hurry kills kindness more than anything else. Even if you're meditating upon a text that is telling you to stop and pay attention to the people that are around you. The, the researchers say, the frequently cited explanation that ethics becomes a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increases is at least an accurate description. See, as I said, God is kind by being attentive to the needs of the world and getting involved. And we are called to be kind by being attentive to each other and getting involved. And ain't a human being in the history of the world that I've ever seen that chooses a convenient time to let you know what they need. Right? We're born as infants, and what, what do we do? We scream in the middle of the night, all night long, about what we need. I don't know how many of you, you know, if, if you're married, you, you lay down, your head just hits the pillow, and that's the moment your spouse is like, hey, we really need to talk about something. Or you're writing a sermon on kindness, and your fellow pastor comes in and wants to talk for an hour. Ben, <coughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. Hurry kills kindness more than anything else. And I know we do have limited attention, and we do need to be good stewards of our time, and so on and so forth. But one of the ways that many people are talking about this now is we need to learn to build margin into our lives. And the best resource, we don't have the time to get into all of this, but the best resource I've ever read on this is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It's a podcast as well as a book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer, he gets right down to the nitty-gritty of what it takes to kind of unhurry yourself in the modern world. But we're called to be kind by being attentive to each other's needs and getting involved. And that takes having space for holy interruptions. So uh, the worship team can come up now if you're around. We've seen that kindness is doing good to others, especially when they can't return it or don't deserve it. I'm a little bit passionate about this because I'm somebody who's grown up in the church. I've been in it my whole life, and kindness is not always the word I would use to describe what I've experienced or what I've seen. You know, I think if I got down to it, most of the time I think the, the statement that they would give for Romans 2-4 would be conviction. Conviction changes hearts. Shame changes hearts. Shame leads to repentance. I mean, we, we've all heard stories, I think, if we've been around church long enough, you know, a young man that I knew of that came out as gay to a pastor that he had worked with for years. And the first word, the first thing this pastor said to them was a word of condemnation, right off the bat. Or the young girl who got pregnant when she was a teenager, scared and alone. She had to walk in the back of the church hearing people whisper about how she used to be such a nice girl. Or people that I knew who were 
trapped in the bondages of sin and addiction and who were too scared to bring it up because they, they felt like they would be shamed or they would be shunned. And a lot of the people that I know that have experienced things like this, they do not cast shadows on the steps of churches anymore. But I do know other stories too. I do know other stories. Another young woman who got pregnant out of wedlock working at a Christian nonprofit and her staff came around her, threw her a baby shower, started making a rotation for how they would care for this child so she could continue working. Or many people who have found somebody and admitted what was going on and they were received with grace and kindness and somebody willing to journey with them in battling whatever addiction or sin it was they were working through. Or I've experienced it myself when I felt called by the Spirit once to confess those things that I'm the least proud of. And I looked in the eyes of a pastor and he told me, Ricky, the grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. He doesn't hold it against you and I don't hold it against you either. In those moments, heaven did touch earth. Complicated and messy as it was. As many questions as could be whirling about in the air. Those people experienced a moment where somebody reflected the kindness of God towards them and it led them to believe that just maybe, just maybe, the all-powerful, almighty creator of the universe is kind enough to care for me. Even though I can't return it and I don't deserve it. So Summit Drive, let's be a people known for our kindness. Let's follow the spirit. Be just one step on his heels behind as he leads us to be a people who give to those who don't deserve it and can't return it. Please stand as we close in worship.